0: A Bit of a Scratch is inspired by real events and is a joint project between the British Association for Sexual Health and HIV and the National Archives. you have before you a task which will need all your courage, energy and patience. Remember, the honour of this empire depends on your individual conduct. In this new experience, you may find temptation both in wine and women. You must entirely resist both temptations. And while treating women with perfect courtesy, you should avoid any intimacy with them. Do your duty bravely. Fear God and honour the King. This short message from Lord Kitchener Secretary of State for War, was folded inside the paybooks of British soldiers as they set off for the trenches during World War I. As Private Frank Richards records in his memoirs, they may as well have not been issued, for all the notice we took of them.
1: No! Well, I'd just got back on leave, see, and Edie, well, we hadn't seen each other for months, so she was keen you know. But I couldn't. I mean I wanted to. God knows I wanted to. But I was afraid that if I'd got something I'd give it to her. Of course she took it all wrong and reckoned I didn't love her anymore. Started getting upset so I says don't be stupid girl. I've just got a bit of a scratch down below like and I'm just very sore. It's festering a bit I think. Festering? she says. You better see a doctor Billy. I told her there was no need for a doctor. I knew a place where they could cure all such things. Then she says, Well, if you think it's all right, go and I'll come with you.
0: (sighs) Bless her. I wasn't expecting that. In 1916, the Royal Commission on Venereal Diseases reported that on the pre-war evidence available, the number of persons infected with syphilis could not be below 10% of the population in the large cities and that the percentage affected by gonorrhea greatly exceeded that figure. Despite the high moral tone of Lord Kitchener's warning, military assumptions of soldiers' sexual needs contradicted the public image of chaste heroes, which was projected at home. The French had reintroduced regulated brothels, or Maison tolérées for their own and allied soldiers during the war, and the British quietly took up this offer. By the end of the First World War, venereal disease had caused over 416,000 hospital admissions amongst British and Dominion troops. Roughly 5% of all of the men who enlisted during the war became infected.
2: It don't smell very nice in here, does it? Shh, someone's coming.
1: Good morning. Good
3: morning. Well, young man, what can I do for you?
1: I've got something I'd like to talk to you privately about.
3: Well, you'd better come through to my consulting room then. You all right here for a bit, madam?
2: Yes, thank you.
3: I knew before he opened his mouth what it was. Another army bad boy. I've seen hundreds of them. Mind you, I'd have kicked him and his bint out straight away if
0: I'd known what they were going to do. In its 1916 report, the Royal Commission identified that unqualified practice existed in many forms. Fear of disgrace and desire for concealment foster self-treatment or resort to quacks. This is true of all sections of the community, and we are informed that the upper classes resort to quacks as readily as the poor.
2: So, what do you think it is?
1: Well, he's sick. Through going with a girl. I ain't been with no girl. Edie, I ain't been with no girl. You might have been. Some time back. And it's just coming out of you now.
2: Oh.
3: Do you want me to give him this medicine or don't you?
2: If you think you can cure him, give him some.
3: I've cured plenty of people who've been ill through girls. If it was a hospital case, I'd tell you. But it's not. Mind you, if you do go to the doctors, don't tell him that you've had any treatment or anything about it. All right? All right? Yes, all right. Good. Now, take these medicines as directed on the bottles and use this powder for relief of your
0: discomfort. That'll be ten and six, please. The Royal Commission were very clear in their view of quacks. We have no hesitation in stating that the effects of unqualified practice in regard to venereal diseases are disastrous, and that, in our opinion, the continued existence of unqualified practice constitutes one of the principal hindrances to the eradication of those diseases. Uh.
2: Billy? Bill? What's the matter?
1: Oh, Christ, it's agony, Edie.
2: That's it. I'm going for the doctor.
1: No, don't. I'll be all right in a bit.
2: I'm going. I'll be as quick as I can.
1: They'll have me on a charge, Edie.
2: We'll sort that out later. You need a doctor.
0: In British military law, the concealment of venereal disease, not the contraction of the disease itself, was punishable as a crime. Nevertheless, soldiers who were hospitalised with venereal disease found themselves penalised by an antiquated system of hospital stoppages, which meant that any man admitted to hospital for reasons not connected with his military service was liable to have money stopped from his pay to help cover the cost of his treatment. You were right to
4: come for me, Mrs. Brewer. I'm afraid the so called medicines given to your husband are either entirely useless or extremely dangerous. I shall be reporting this to the public health authorities, and I suggest your husband also reports his disease to his commanding officer as quickly as possible. Do you understand me?
2: Yes. Yes, I do. I'll make sure he does. Thank you, Doctor.
0: By late 1916, many local authorities had moved quickly to adopt the Royal Commission's recommendation that arrangements should be made for providing for the whole community extended facilities for bacteriological diagnosis combined with the provision of adequate skilled free treatment. Money thus expended in detecting and giving treatment for venereal disease will be recouped by the nation in avoidance of later expenditure on insanity and the many other diseases due to syphilis and gonorrhea. Supported by generous government grants to cover 75% of the cost, facilities for treating venereal diseases were provided in increasing numbers by local authorities. However, the issue of unqualified practitioners still remained. And in early January 1917, the government was urged to legislate by several concerned parties. Amongst them, the County Councils Association, the Royal College of Physicians and the National Council for Combating Venereal Diseases.
2: I don't think I've ever been as angry as I was with that chemist. Or whatever he calls himself. A quack, that's what he is taking advantage of us like that. He could have killed Billy. It's just not right. How do these people get away with it? I was going to go and give him a piece of my mind, but Billy stopped me. What good would it do, he said. But I couldn't stop thinking about it. After what he's been through already in this war, and it's not over yet, he'll have to go back when he's better. So I went to the police.
0: The recommendations of the Royal Commission were incorporated in the public health regulations, the principles of which still govern the rights and responsibilities of patients and staff in clinics today. It supported the Venereal Diseases Act, which defined exactly which conditions came within the meaning of the Act, directed the local authorities to provide free and confidential treatment, and imposed legal penalties on any who failed to maintain confidentiality. It made it a criminal offence for any other than authorised persons to treat such conditions, and it forbade the commercial advertising of any drug or preparation claiming to do so. Yes,
4: I'd say Mrs Brewer was embarrassed at first she asked if there was somewhere quiet she could speak to me. But once she got going, you could tell how angry she was, and I must say I felt quite sorry for her. I accompanied her home, where her husband, William Brewer, was in bed, very ill. I asked if I could take a statement from each of them, and they agreed. Mrs. Brewer in particular seemed much cheered, when I explained that this situation might justify proceedings being taken against the owner of the shop. Later on, I visited the premises, where all kinds of patent medicines are sold, and also various surgical instruments. From the appearance of the shop, and the information that I gleaned locally, the shop is extensively used by men and women suffering from this class of disease. I spoke with the owner, who said he did remember Mr. and Mrs. Brewer from the day before.
3: But all I did was give him some advice and a tonic to strengthen him, which is what he asked me for. Well, the whole lot only came to ten and six, and he done it to assist him.
0: This won't come to anything, will it, Inspector? I was only trying to help. On March the 8th, 1918, a report in the Morning Advertiser described the first prosecution under the Venereal Diseases Act 1917. In giving his decision, Mr. Ruth said...
3: The defendant clearly comes within the statute, for he is not a qualified medical practitioner. It is the intention of the act that persons should not be treated by quacks. Those who know the terrible results of the disease know the only hope is to obtain the best advice obtainable. The present being the first prosecution and in the hope that it will act as a deterrent, I will not send you to prison, but I will fine you Twenty-five shillings and two and tuppence costs.
0: In the wider context, while it was acknowledged that the act had started to take effect, the government faced constant criticism from several quarters. Dr Helen Wilson of the National Council for Combating Venereal Disease said...
2: A point I would lay stress on is the present lack of provision for respectable married women to be treated at general hospitals. They can be treated at workhouse infirmaries, but treatment is often very inefficient, and women object to going into workhouse infirmaries. It is impossible to treat these diseases adequately if the question of the guilt of the sufferers is emphasised. Treatment should be made adaptable to all, and equally helpful to all.
0: Criticism from the Dominions was also extremely severe. It had been clear for some time that roughly half of all cases of venereal disease were contracted while troops were on leave or still in training. Dominion governments complained bitterly of the temptations offered by the shoals of prostitutes, ready to pounce on their troops as they saw it. And the seeming inability of the British government to remedy the situation. At the Imperial War Conference of 1918, the Canadian envoy, Mr. Rowell, was blunt in expressing his opinion of what should be done. We do not see any adequate reason why
3: known prostitutes should not be interned and put out of the way until war is over. Whether diseased or not diseased. We do not see that they should be permitted to infest the streets and public places of this country, lying in wait for clean young men who come to give their lives for their country and whom we
0: are now compelling to leave their homes to come over here. The chairman of the conference responded. We have been told
4: that the real difficulty is in establishing what is a prostitute. If you shut up every known prostitute, you would not materially deal with this difficulty, because a great deal of the infection, I understand, comes from people who are not prostitutes at all, and whose character is not discovered until they are found to be
0: diseased. In 1916, it was made a crime under the Defense of the Realm Act, for prostitutes to approach men in uniform. In 1918, the government attempted further regulation, forbidding women with VD from having sexual intercourse with any soldier and giving the police powers to medically examine suspected prostitutes. Such invasive and one-sided legislation, aimed at women and only protecting men, provoked fierce protests from suffragettes and moral campaigners but the legislation stood until the end of the war. A more pragmatic option of issuing prophylactics to their troops, as recommended by the remarkable New Zealand nurse, Etty Rout, was rejected by the British government, as they feared a public relations disaster. Etty Rout saw venereal disease as a medical issue, not a moral one, and although her advocacy of condoms and clean brothels caused outrage in New Zealand... Nevertheless, her government secretly sanctioned the free issue of her kits to the troops abroad. The British government never really found an effective way of coping with the dilemma of medicine versus morality. And the situation drifted on until after the war, when concern moved towards how to manage the impact of the demobilization of more than three million men a significant percentage of whom would be suffering with venereal disease. A hundred years on from the passing of the Venereal Diseases Act and the provision of diagnosis and treatment of sexually transmitted infections faces a modern-day challenge. Dr Elizabeth Carlin, President of the British Association for Sexual Health and HIV.
5: The last century has seen remarkable developments in sexual health and we are rightly proud to celebrate these. The centenary provides a timely reminder of the continued importance of good sexual health to us all and the need to ensure that the progress we have made is not lost. The recent rise in sexually transmitted infections, the emergence of antibiotic resistant sexual infection and the opportunities for intervention and prevention means that the provision of high quality sexual health services is more important to us than ever. It is essential that the NHS, national and local government prioritises sexual health adequately so that we can continue to deliver the best possible outcomes for patients and ensure that the United Kingdom continues to provide sexual health care that we can be proud of.
0: A Bit of a Scratch was written by Debbie Manship. The narrator was Stephen McGann. Billy, Louis Cardona. Edie, Larry Amis. The chemist, David Jarvis. The doctor, Peter Wickham. All other parts were played by members of the cast. Music was composed by Chris Maiden. The audio engineer was Holly Paris. A Bit of a Scratch was directed by Paul Dawson, produced by Roll Call and recorded at ID Audio.